If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where we are continuing to work through the first subject that Paul deals with in this book, which is the subject of false teachers. And in specific today, we are going to look at the lawful use of God's law. Let's say someone came up to you and told you, you know, you need to be offering up sacrifices because it says to do that in the law of Moses. What would you say? You'd probably say, hey, listen, Christ has already died. He is the once for all sacrifice. As a matter of fact, all sacrifices pointed to Jesus. And because Jesus died, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And therefore, he fulfilled the ceremonial system, and I don't need to offer those sacrifices. So then they tell you, you know, but you do need to keep the feasts and the holidays and the Sabbath days because the law of Moses does say to do that. And if you're like most people, you would say, oh, that's Old Testament. And if you were a little bit more precise, you might quote them 2 Corinthians 2.16, let no one judge you with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbath day. Or Romans 15 or 14.5, which says, you know, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind of the day he worships. And so you could say, I don't have to keep those feasts because they were just a shadow. They were nothing more than big pointers that pointed to Jesus, the substance. But what if they were to say, well, okay, let's say you don't have to keep those, but you do have to keep the government regulations. I mean, after all, the government that God made could not be improved upon, so you need to fight to have the Old Testament governmental system reinstituted. And what would you say? You'd probably say, well, listen... That, that Old Testament law was given to Israel when they were in the land under the Deuteronomic Covenant. Now, I'm not Israel, and I'm not in the land, and I'm not under the curses of the Deuteronomic Covenant. And this is not a theocracy or a theocratic monarchy where God is either directly ruling the nation or he is directly ruling the nation through some godly king, and so we don't have to do that. And then they bring out another one, a big gun. And they say, okay, don't you believe that we have to keep the law of Moses? Don't you believe that we are under the law? And you say, no. Paul says we are not under law, but under grace. Now, you don't know what the context is of that verse, but it gets them off your back. And so then they say, oh, so you don't believe in keeping the Ten Commandments. It's okay to murder, okay to steal, okay to lie, okay to worship idols, okay to covet. And it's at this point that most Christians wish they were not having the conversation because they don't know what to say. What is the lawful use of God's law? What is the purpose of the law? What is the relationship between the law and the gospel? 
Are Christians to live without law? Are they to be lawless ones, antinomians, just do whatever they want? Just be like the people during the times of the judges and everybody does what is right in their own eyes? Or do we have to obey law? And if so, which ones? Now, on one side of the spectrum, Christians in their struggle have said, oh, huh, listen, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Gospels, because that is all in the Old Testament era before Christ died, none of that applies. And, you know, those are the people, you just rip out their Old Testament and say, good, now your Bible's lighter. Then on the other side of the spectrum, there are those who say, oh, no, 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 we're saved by grace, but you've got to keep the laws. You've got to keep the dietary laws. We need to reinstate the Old Testament system of government. Uh, we need to keep as many of the laws as we possibly can, except for those ones you know, that relate to the sacrificial system, which is fulfilled in Christ. And others have tried to divide up the law into three parts, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. And then they say, we only need to keep the moral. Now that's pretty handy. The problem is, it just isn't biblical. Because the moral laws were used in the civil and ceremonial system. And the ceremonial laws have moral and civil implications. And the civil laws have moral and ceremonial implications. You cannot tear them apart. They are integrated. And so that doesn't work very good. Then, if you have somebody who's thought about it a while, they, they might tell you this, and maybe you have heard this before. We only need to keep those parts of the Old Testament that are repeated in the New. Well, think about that. You know what that means? We don't need the Old Testament. If everything's in the New Testament that we need to deal with, then we don't need the Old Testament which is a scary thought because almost everything the Bible teaches about the character and nature of God comes from the Old Testament and is not repeated in the New. Well, others, like myself, would tell you this. We need to keep all of the law except those parts of the law that are explicitly or implicitly done away with or superseded or fulfilled in the New Testament. I believe the scriptures teach that books like Leviticus, just to give you just the most difficult one, contain authoritative truths and principles that Christians today must obey or, the, or else they are sinning against God. Yet when you read some texts of the Old Testament, it's confusing. Because you come to these texts that say things like, well, when Christ died, he abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Or you read texts like, we are no longer under law, or cursed is any man who hangs in a tree, and by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And you're just like, well, it looks like I could tear it out. But then you look at other verses, verses that say, all Scripture 
is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequately equipped for every good work. Or these things were written in former times that by them we might grow in respect to godliness. Or these things were written as an example. And so you're asking yourself, which one's true? Well, they're all true. The problem is, is it's such a difficult subject that most Christians get a brain hemorrhage trying to figure it out. And through the ages, theologians have labored over this and written huge tomes. And usually you'll find out that as you read different views on this, they, they kind of camp on a certain group of verses the throw away the law verses. Or they camp on this group of verses, the law is profitable and we need to keep it. Or on this verses, the purpose of the law verses. Or, you know, they, they kind, of, kind of camp on a certain and they kind of just don't tell me about those other ones. I mean, that messes up my system. But we need to realize that all of those verses all fit together and they don't contradict themselves because they come from one God. The problem is, is we don't understand how they fit together. Now, the problem is, is in our text today, Paul just jumps into this business of the law. And really, I can't teach this passage like I want to teach this passage until you know what the law is what the purpose of the law is, and what its purpose is not. And so what we're going to do today is just begin to look at verses 8 through 11, and we'll have to finish up next week. But I want to kind of give you some really fun stuff. Now, I just want to apologize at the beginning here. This is pretty cognitive. This is mental. And uh, I would love to just distill all this down and just the bunch of cute illustrations and pictures. I'm sorry. If you've ever taken a drink from a fire hose, then you know what this morning's going to be like. <laughs> there is this huge theological quagmire surrounding the issue of the law, and most Christians do not know what to say. That's Old Testament doesn't cut it. We need to be able to reconcile all of the scriptures that speak to the law. Now I'm going to drag you into the quagmire and next Sunday we'll hopefully be out on the other side. Now our text comes in a section addressing false teachers and we've seen this in the last couple of weeks. Paul gives his credentials to Timothy in uh, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 and then right off the bat in verse 3 he gives him the command, Timothy, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths nor endlessly genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Just the first thing out of his mouth is, Timothy, you better take care of these guys. And then in verse 5, he contrasts the real purpose of true teaching, and that is, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith then he exposes 
the fact that in verse 6, some men have strayed from these things. They have turned aside to fruitless discussion. And some of their motives, they want to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. And having said that, he is now going to address this topic of the law. Now, the problem is, is he doesn't say everything that he says about the law in, in every book he wrote. As a matter of fact, he just gives us a hair out of the whole bundle of hairs that are all woven through all of the books that he wrote. And so the problem is, is for me to address this, I can't just take a hair and throw it out because then you're going to have a lopsided view of what the law is. So we're going to do major, major rabbit trail today. We're going to be so into the rabbit trail that we're barely going to get back to the text. We will get back eventually. But I just want you to know, if you're wondering when are we going to get back, it's next week. (laughs) Now here we have in this text three important truths we're going to learn. One, that there is a lawful use of the law. Two, that there is a purpose for God's law. And three, there is a relationship between sound teaching and the law and the gospel. Now, Paul says this in verse 8. Now, he's just said that the false teachers have strayed from the goal of instruction, which is love, and they've turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers. They don't know what they're saying. They're making confident assertions. And then he says in verse 8 this, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for those ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murders and for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So that's what he says. And the first thing we need to note is this, that there is a lawful use of God's law. That's what verse 8 says. Immediately after Paul speaks of those who boast, he says, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So that tells us right off the bat two important truths. First, the law is good. And Paul says that, as the famous text is Romans seven twelve, when addressing the issue of being set free from the bondage to the law, he says this, So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. That's what he says about the law. So the law is good. That is perfectly clear. There's nothing wrong with God's law. I mean, just read Psalm 119 sometime. Read Psalm 19 sometime. And you'll see that God has a perfect law and the sum of his truths and ordinances and commandments are righteous altogether. But then he says, if one uses it lawfully, which tells us something else. That for Christians, there is a proper use of the law. But the question is, what is the law? And so we need to first define that before we ask, what is the rightful use of the law. Now, these false teachers, remember, are teaching law. They aren't producing love and they're making confident assertions about things they don't know. But Paul counters that by saying there is a rightful use of the law which tells us the false teachers were using the law but in an unlawful way not according to its purpose. 
And we need to ask ourselves this question. Who were these people? And what is this law? Well, the law he's speaking about here is the law of Moses. And some people say, oh, it's just the Ten Commandments. And other people say, oh, it's all the laws. But it really doesn't make that much difference. And I'll show you why in a minute. Just hang tight. But think about this. As you read through Paul's letters, there is a certain group he he addresses over and over again. People who are among the Christians. People who say they believe in Jesus. But people who are trying to be justified by works, are actually kept by works after being saved by grace. Who are they? The Judaizers. They're kind of modified Pharisees. They prided themselves that they were teachers of the law, that they were righteous because they kept the law. And the Judaizers were were accepting Jesus, but the problem is, is after accepting Jesus, it's, oh, but you know, now you've got to kind of keep the law of Moses too. I mean, you know, we can't just dump all of that. And a good example of what they did is found in Acts 15.1. And if you've ever studied Acts, you know that Acts is that chapter where they have the big council about whether or not they're going to compel the, the, the Gentiles to be circumcised. And at Acts 15.1, the beginning of the chapter, this is what started the whole council. All the elders and apostles of the church gathered together to discuss this issue because, verse 1 says, "...some main men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren." Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And that is the match that lit the fuse that started the whole discussion about what they were going to compel the Gentiles to do or not do. Now, by saying you are justified by works, it's defined justified, justified is a declaring someone to be righteous. Let's say that, um, that uh, you robbed a bank just for fun and um, you decided that uh, you better go to court um, since you were in jail and they had you handcuffed. But they, went, they take you to, the, to court and um, the, the judge is there and he is um, getting ready to sentence you. But a good friend of yours steps up to the plate and says, um, Judge, this is what I want to do. I want you to sentence me. And what I am going to do is take this man's penalty and serve his time. And so the judge says, Are you sure? And you say, Yes. So he punishes the innocent man And the guilty man is justified. It's just as if he had never sinned. It is just a declaration that says he is just. A forensic, like court law justification that he is now just. And this is what happens when we come and place our faith in Christ. Because Christ took all of our penalties upon him, we are then justified because he took our place and substituted himself receiving our penalty so we could go free. That's what I mean when I'm talking about justified. So, 
by saying you are saved by grace and kept by works, they're just nullifying justification. Why? Because if a man is justified by good works, then we don't need Jesus. Not only that, if Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins, but we can save our own selves from our own sins by being good, then he died for nothing. And not only that, Paul says that by the means of the law, no one will be justified, and the law is merely a tutor to lead us to Christ. And so the Judaizers were teaching a severe heresy. So back to the big question. Just how does a person take the good, holy, righteous law of God and use it in a lawful way? How do you as a Christian do that? That's the big question. Well, we're going to look at Exodus 20. Turn there. And you need to know that in the law of Moses, there are some 613 commandments. 613 commandments. But they all stem from the Ten Commandments. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, you need to know the context here. In chapter 19, the people have all assembled. They've, you know, left and done the ten plagues thing. They've gone through the Red Sea. They're camped at Mount Sinai. And now while they're there for a year and two-month period, um, God's going to give them instructions about the tabernacle and all this stuff. But right at the very beginning, God tells Moses in chapter 19, Moses, this is what I want you to do, bud. He says, I want you to consecrate the people. I want them to abstain from all wickedness. I want them to consecrate themselves because tomorrow I'm coming down on the mountain and I am going to speak to them directly. So the people started getting their act together so they could talk, have a chat with God. And... God kept warning Moses, now Moses, don't even let one of them put their foot at the base of the mountain. I will break forth on them. You make sure they stay holy, they stay clean, and they stay away. And so all of this fire comes down on the mountain in this huge dark cloud and lightning and thunder. And most people don't know this, but the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 were verbally given to the people by God himself. They heard the commandments delivered to them verbally. Well, if you read the context, the people, they're pretty freaked. I mean, they are scared spitless. They're drooling, drooling scared. It's like, Moses, we'll tell you what. Um, we don't want God to talk to us anymore. We'll tell you what, you just have God talk to you and then what we'll do is listen to you and you tell us what God says because it's too scary what he talks to us. So that's how it worked the rest of the time. But as he begins to give the Ten Commandments, if you look at Exodus 20, 
His first commandment, look at verse 6. His first commandment, in the, right before verse 6, is you shall have no other gods before me. Then he gives the second commandment, saying they shall not make idols. And look at the end of the second commandment, which is found in verse 6, where God says, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now notice what he said there. Don't miss it. Showing loving kindness to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. There is a connection there between those who love God and those who keep his commandments. As a matter of fact, the very reason why God gave them the commandments is so they could show their love to God. Now turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And while you're doing that, I'll give you the background of the first four chapters. In the first four chapters of Deuteronomy... Moses gives a historical synopsis of what has happened to Israel up to that point. He kind of gives them, uh, you know, the Reader's Digest condensed version of the history of Israel in four chapters. And he does that. Then, in chapter 5, he restates the Ten Commandments again. He gives them the Ten Commandments just like he does in Exodus 20. Then, in chapter 6, he begins, in verse 4, giving what is called the Great Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word to hear or to listen. And if you were to go to Israel today, you would see these um, little um, devices that they put. I think they're called mezuzahs. They put them on their doorposts. There is a little glass tube. They're kind of decorative. And what they have inside of that little tube is what we're going to read here in a second. And usually the Ten Commandments and sometimes other stuff. But they have this little bit of God's law stuck on the doorpost on their house because if you were to keep reading after what we, you know, you were to bind them on your hand and on your forehead and put them on the doorposts of your house and teach them to the children when you rise up and when you lie down and when you go on the way, which means have God's laws always before you. Now, look at verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. And now, as I read this, I want you to notice that this is at the pinnacle of the law. This is right before Moses is going to give them the expanded edition of the law. And notice what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then he just gives them all the other commands, unloads all the other commands on them. The important point not to miss is this. God says, love me with all your heart, soul, and might, and do it by keeping my commandments. That's what that text teaches. As a matter of fact, if you were to do a study, you'd find it appears over and over in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what's interesting, it's the same thing Jesus said in John 14, for instance, when he said in verse 15 of John 14, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Isn't that interesting? In verse 21 of the same chapter, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, which means if you have my commandments and don't keep them, you aren't the one who loves me. It is the same thing we discover in 1 John, way towards the end of the New Testament, where John says this in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. 
This fundamental truth has never changed. All law given by God has always been for the purpose, the ultimate purpose of us showing our love to Him. And you need to remember that. Paul makes this crystal clear in Romans 4. In the first three chapters, he says, oh yeah, well, I want you to know, everybody's a sinner, the moral guy's a sinner, the the religious guy's the sinner, um, the Gentile's a sinner. As a matter of fact, everybody's a sinner. And then he says, and you're justified by faith. And then in chapter 4, he says, now listen, listen to this. He says, you who think that you're trying to be justified by works, let me just ask you a question. You know, Abraham, yeah, 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 Abraham, the father of your nation. Yeah, that one. Do you know when Abraham received righteousness from God? And they're all thinking back. Let's see, when was that? Was it before or after he was circumcised? Um, Before. Good answer. Then he says, so was it before or after the giving of the Mosaic law? Mm. Before. See? That's his whole argument. Moses received justification, he received the righteousness which is by faith before being circumcised, before any of the laws of Moses were written. And Paul's whole argument is salvation has always been by grace through faith. You know, some Christians think, well, you know, in the Old Testament they they were saved by works, but now we're saved by grace. No, that is the only way anybody has ever been saved. And we need to understand that too. Well, let's get back to the law. Now, what I'm going to tell you is just absolutely critically important. So if you've been snoozing from all of this data, wake up. Listen carefully here. The Jews of Jesus' time, the New Testament times, by far and large, they all believed that salvation was by keeping the law. That is what the Pharisees taught, the most influential sect in the Jewish culture, that you have to do the laws to be saved, to be justified, to be right before God. This was false. In almost every place in the New Testament where Paul addresses the law, he is addressing that false concept. That is so important to know because it helps you understand so many passages and why Paul says what he says when he's talking about the law and how Christ abolished the law. Not the law itself, but the law as a means of salvation. He's he's arguing against their false beliefs. Now, having said that, I need to take you on an extended rabbit trail off the rabbit trail we've already been on. And let's talk about the Ten Commandments. Because this is really important and a lot of people don't understand this. If you were to study the Ten Commandments, you would discover that the Ten Commandments can be divided up quite easily into two parts. Commandments 1 through 4 relate to how we show our love to God directly... And then the last six commandments tell us how we are to show our love to God indirectly by loving our neighbor. Watch this. 
Commandment number one, no other gods before me. Commandment number two, no idols before me. Commandment number three, don't take my name in vain. Commandment number four, thou shalt keep the Sabbath holy for me. And so those four commandments are all how we are to love God directly. Now, the next ones all relate to our neighbor, how we love God by loving our neighbor. The fifth through the tenth commands. The fifth one, honor your father and mother. Don't murder others. Don't commit adultery with others or against others. Don't steal others' goodies. Don't lie about others and don't covet other people's stuff. And that's basically what the commands are. Now, what's interesting is every single law in the Old Testament that was given, all 613 of them are all examples of these 10. They are all practical ways of applying These ten. Every one of them. Now, here is the real clincher. And hopefully this might come together. You remember what Jesus said, what is the greatest command? He said, he quotes the Shema, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the first and foremost command is to love the Lord your God. Now, do you see why Jesus said that? He said that because all the law law and the prophets hung on those two commands. That's what he said. All 613 commands hang on the ten, which hang on the two, which hang on the one. You get it? So... When somebody says, oh, well, it's just the Ten Commandments, or no, it's all 613, doesn't make any difference. Why? James tells us if you break one law, you do what? Break them all. Why? Because all 613 can be summed up into 10, can be summed up into 2, can be summed up into 1, which is love God, which is the very reason why law was given in the first place. Now, rabbit trail ends. Look at the text. It makes you wonder why he said in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love. You see why he said that? Because their false instruction was not producing love to God and love to one's neighbor. So when he gets to verse 8, Paul says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now we know what he is talking about. The lawful use of God's law in the life of a believer is to use it to, one, show love to God, and two, to show love to one's neighbor. That is why we have law as believers. That is its primary and ultimate purpose. 
He is talking about using the law not as a means of salvation, not as a way to be justified, not as a means of being a springboard to talk about Jewish myths and endless genealogies, but as a means of expressing love to God. And that's why he says the law is good if one uses it lawfully, i.e., verse 5, love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. So, the ultimate and rightful purpose of the law is to express love to God. Now that we have that done, we can move on to verse 9. Now, what is the purpose of God's law? Well, we've already said its huge purpose is to be used lawfully for the glory of God, but yet when you look at the scriptures, you find out some other things. There are some other sub-purposes, purposes which feed that ultimate purpose. And what might those be? Well, let me just read a couple of them to you. Some of them overlap. I'll just give you the main ones. Remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders in John 5, 39? You search the scriptures because that you, you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that what? Bear witness of me. There's a purpose of the law right there. The law is a huge sign that says, Jesus, this way. And people say, where? Where? That's what the law is for. He says they're pointing to Jesus. Do you remember what Paul said of Timothy? Timothy, remember, was instructed by his grandmother Lois, or grandmother Eunice and Lois. I don't know which one was which, I forget. But one of both of them. They taught him the law. And he says this about Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He reminds Timothy that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which have given you wisdom that what? Leads to salvation. So not only is the Old Testament a pointer to Jesus, it actually contains enough wisdom to actually bring someone to saving faith which is obvious, as many people were saved in the Old Testament. And if you were to look in the book of Acts, you see Paul arguing with people from Moses and the law and the prophets. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3, 19-20, after he's condemned all men and said, there's none righteous, not even one, there's none who understands, all have turned aside, all that stuff. He says this in verse 19 of chapter 3. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now there's another one too. Not only is it a pointer... Not only is it an evangelistic tool, but it is also something that shows us our sin. I mean, it says, don't do this, and what happens? We do it. Now, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Now, the whole book of Galatians is a book written against Judaizers, these men that he's dealing with in the text before us in 1 Timothy. But I want to just point out some critical things here. Paul is refuting the Judaizers, and he says this in Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, God gave the law because men were sinners. 
having been ordained through the angels, through angels by the agency of a mediator. And that is, as you look in the scriptures, you find out that somehow angels had a, pro, had, um, um, a part in the inspiration of scriptures or delivering the message to, to the men who wrote it down. And then he says this, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, and you can just skip the big clause in the middle, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Well, who's the seed? Well, he goes on to say that the seed is Christ. Remember what happened in Genesis 3.15, that the, the Adam and Eve fell, and there was a curse on the serpent, and the serpent would bruise the woman's seed, but the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. That was the first prophecy of Christ. That's what they were waiting for, the hope of the Messiah, and Christ is that Messiah. So here he says, the law was added because of sin until the promised seed, who is Christ, should come. Now, Look down at verse 21. He goes on saying, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And he uses the strongest Greek adversative here, May it never be. For if law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He says, you know what happened? The law was this huge tool used by God to show men that, man, I am a loser. I need a savior big time, man. I can't keep all these commandments. This is too heavy. And so I need help, God. I need mercy. I need grace. Send the Messiah. So he did. So he did. But then he says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. In other words, the law says you're guilty. You know you're guilty. You know you aren't doing this perfectly. So come here to Jesus. Let me show you Jesus, a tutor to lead you to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Why? Because once you come to saving faith, you don't need the leader to lead you there anymore. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in a statement, get this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The ultimate purpose of the law. Now, When you start reading verses like that, you realize that for an unbeliever, the law is nothing more than a condemnation tool, a guilt producer, a a sin shower. The law just shows unbelievers, oh man, I am desperate. I I need Jesus. And so it makes them, puts them under conviction and shows them the need for the Savior and then leads them by that to Christ so that they can be saved, so they can be turned into lovers of God. Lovers of God. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 again. Paul says, after he says, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. Now the big question is, who is this righteous person? Who is this righteous person? And and when I do my studies, and I want you to know, this week was a big one. 
I sat in there, and I hate to look at my commentaries, even though I have a slug of them, until I've come to a conclusion. And I, I about got a brain hemorrhage over this one. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, the righteous person. Now, there's none righteous, not even one. But we are called righteous. I mean, we are saints. And we do have righteousness in Christ. And yet, I don't know if that's the right view or not. Well, I almost took the view that many commentators take that this verse is talking about the saved person, that the righteous person is referring to a Christian. So what Paul is saying is, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, a Christian. And you could argue because it's only a tutor, and once you come to Christ, there's no need for the law, because if you read some of those other texts, it teaches that. But this can't be the interpretation, and I'll tell you why. First of all, Paul says that there is a lawful use for the law in verse 8, which means for Christians there is a lawful use of the law. Secondly, many scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, teach believers to obey God's commandments, to meditate on His laws, to think in His laws, to love His law, to practice His law. And so, that's the second reason. Third, if you look at the text, look at the end of verse 10. Now, this is a little tricky here, but this is a fun one. Look at the end of verse 10 where it says... After listing all of these sins, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, I thought that phrase is very fascinating to me. You know why that's fascinating? Because that text right there, in in verse 9 and 10, lists all of these things that men do, wicked actions, and he doesn't contrast wicked actions with righteous actions, but contrasts wicked actions with sound teaching. Why? Because sound teaching produces righteous behavior. And that is why the whole letter was written to Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. But back to this little thing. Why does this tell us that the righteous person in verse 9 is not the believer. Notice what it says. If all of these sins mentioned here, which just so happen to fit under the Ten Commandments, if these representative sins against the Ten Commandments are what is contrary to sound teaching, then what is according to sound teaching? To obey the Ten Commandments. You see, if all these sins against the Ten Commandments are contrary to sound teaching, then what is favorable to sound teaching is the obedience of the Ten Commandments. So that's why I don't think that righteous person that he's talking about there is in fact the person who is saved. But... We're going to have to save that for next week. Who is the righteous guy? But I want you to turn to one last text, Romans 13, 8. And we'll close with this passage. It's a good passage because it summarizes for us some of the purpose 
of God's law and what we've been talking about so far today. In the first part of Romans 13, he talks about the governing authorities submitting to them, knowing that they are put there by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And after he gets talking about there is no authority except that which is established by God, he says this in verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this... Now notice what he does. What does it mean to fulfill the law? For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me just ask you. Can you love your neighbor as yourself if you're sinning against them? No. So, the fulfillment of the law is not that you don't do law anymore, it's that you don't do it for any other reason but to love God and love your neighbor. And that's why he says at the the end, love does no wrong to a neighbor. The love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So as Christians, we find out this. There is a lawful use of God's law in your life. And that lawful use is to produce love to God and your neighbor. Secondly, the false teachers that Paul refers to in verse 7 were Judaizers who believed they were justified by keeping the law. Third, almost all of Paul's discussion in the New Testament about the law are a refutation of Judaizers and those who were like them. And four, love is the fulfillment of the law because it obeys the law to show love to God and love to one's neighbor. Now, next week, the cliffhanger. Who is that righteous guy? Because that is really the key to understanding the whole passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And Father, I pray that even though much of the information was kind of mental this morning, I pray that it would be cemented on our hearts and minds so that whenever we obey you, whenever we obey any command, that we would do it for the right motive that we would do it because you are worthy, because we want to show our love to you. We want to show our love to other people to give you glory. Father, help us to remember that your love can, can cause us to be a great witness in this world. But the law, it can only bring us under conviction. And Father, it can't save us. It can't make us right before you. But, Father, it's not to be ignored because it shows us your righteous standard, the righteous standard by which we can show our love to the one who created us. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.